Hello, everybody. Welcome to Float Your Boat. I'm Brett Pattinson, and where Donny? Where's George? I don't know. I haven't seen him. Uh, he's probably out chasing goats again. Ah, typical. <laughs> so, listeners, today we have a chap named Ryan Everton. Ryan has a company called Globlet, and Globlet is uh, around about seven years old now, um, and they have what. Uh, Ryan will say is a circular economy. Uh, the aim is to um, get rid of the use of single-use um, plastics like drink bottles and cups. Um, and as the founder, he's trying to put this system into every event um, worldwide, I guess, eventually. Um he started in New Zealand. He grew up in New Zealand and I think he was a farm boy and uh, he's, uh, he's a monster. He's about six foot seven or six foot eight and he's got a, he's got a very definite, um, very definite uh, philosophy on life. So let's get him in and have a listen to what he's got to say. Float Your Boat podcast about how everyday people created their road to success. The highs, the lows, pitfalls and potholes and how they overcame it all. And now, here are your hosts. G'day, Ryan. How are, how are you? you going? Yeah, good. Yeah, thanks for coming into the studio. Yeah, no problem. So, let's kick off with where were you born? I grew up in a small farm in New Zealand. Um, Whereabouts? It's by Wellington, uh, the horror of Whenua, it's called. Don't know where that is, but <laughs> I'm sure it's lovely. Most yep. of New Zealand is. Yeah, what whops they call it. Uh, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> right, right. And you, um, so you went to school there? Yeah, I, I went to school in Wanganui, which is a, a boarding school just out of there. Right. Uh, brothers and sisters? Yeah, I've got an older brother and older sister, 14 and 12 years older than me. So was your dad, were you farmers? Or? Yeah, dad's a plumber by trade and then we had a farm there as well, which right. he owned with his brothers. Right, and I guess growing up in New Zealand is vastly different to the world you're in now. Pretty much, yeah, it's a big difference. So what was it that brought you to where you are today? Like how did you, tell us a bit about the company, I guess. Um, well, uh I, Globlet essentially is a circular economy business that we started eight years ago, or I started eight years ago at university, um, and pretty much we manufacture, wash and recycle all our own products. And we're very systems-based and we go to major events predominantly, uh, put in reusable products and then take them all back after and wash them or recycle them, um, right. and that's kind of the backbone. And for people out there that don't understand why you're doing that, let's, let's, let's go back to the why. Like, what what inspired you to do this? Um, well, do you want the long story or the short story? The long story. <laughs> the, the, the long story is, is I was 15 rowing at, for my school and um, 
Harvard approached us saying that they'd want us, a couple of us to come over and study at Harvard. And part of the process to go study at Harvard is you have to write these essays. And my rowing coach at the time was from England and his uh, best friend had done the applications to the universities as well. So he started helping him, uh, helping us with it. He had applied to Cambridge and the essay topic for him when he applied was, what was the scariest thing you've done? And the scariest thing was that he wrote this and put a full stop and that was his essay. And then he got into Cambridge. And part of what that got me going is thinking a lot uh, differently around the world in a whole bunch of different ways. Ted, Ted had just come out. Yep. I, when Ted had came out, I'd watched pretty much every single video within a couple of months of when it came out. Um, and that with Malcolm Gladwell and a whole bunch of different writers at the time got me trying to view the world in a different way. Um, and part of that was, was that college and university was a waste of time. Right. And so I, had this follow, I was writing these essays for Harvard and at the same time thinking, why, why am I even applying for these universities when there's no point in going in my view? Right, yeah, yeah. Because the world's going to be dramatic, uh, drastically different in the next 10 years, which it has, and I think it's sort of caught up right now. How long ago was that? This is 10 years ten, ago, right. yeah. yeah. And I think, and it's still growing. Um, we're more young people now, you know, uh, either quitting their jobs or whatever it is or they're choosing not to go to college and travel around the world and there's still a lot that do fall into that system or don't fall into that system. Mm. Um, but I then had the philosophy that I could probably go to university, still go to university and be uh, doing something else at the same time. Um, and part of it was my parents wanted me to, to be a lawyer. So I actually ended up going to a university called Berkeley and I dropped out after a couple of weeks because I'd already spent some time studying law at Otago in New Zealand. Right. And um, the part of the reason for dropping out was uh, I had a university in, a, in New Zealand dollars that at that time was going to be $75,000 New Zealand a year. The scholarship was for $25,000. So after four years, I was thinking I'm 200K in debt yeah, right. for an American university and I'm rowing 14 times a week and I'm studying for something that I don't even think I'm going to do. So I dropped out and came back and did law school. And part of the reason I chose to do law school is um, uh, I'd met a hedge fund manager who said if he was to do two degrees, he'd do either an engineering degree and a legal degree because all the people he knows who have been super successful in terms of making money and having a fulfilled life were either engineers or lawyers and then they did the MBA <coughs> and started up, started up their own business. So that kind of became my philosophy and I worked out a hack of how to get your law degree without going to law school, which is very simple, which is that if as long as I knew the dean of the law school and I was friends with some of the professors, I could essentially not go to law school and if the second phase of it was as long as you had the note, the law doesn't change every year apart from a couple of different cases. Mm -hmm. So as long as you had notes from the student from the year before and notes from one of the smarter students, predominantly girls because they wrote uh, tidier notes, you could exchange notes and you'd, the difference between an A and a B in a law class is what, what was the legal change in those two years, which if you compared notes, you'd see what the difference in notes were between the two years. Yep. And that meant you knew what the case was, which would give you an A. And so you didn't have to go to class because everyone was writing the exact same notes. Right. You had notes from the year before, notes from that girl, and you went to the professor and started challenging him on a few questions before the exam the week before. So you'd know 
within four days of an exam, predominantly what was in it, had all the notes. And so you could get your law degree without going to law school and have an A. And there was a second part to it. Peter Field, he founded um, PayPal and also was an investor in Facebook. He has this manifesto of why he didn't want to go to law school, which he did anyway. He was going to become a, a clerk. And his thing was is that no law professor ever reads every word in a in an essay or anything you write in an exam. So as long as you have a highlighter and highlight every key case, even if the cases are wrong, the professor's just going to go through tick the highlights because he feels like you know what you know you know what you know and know what you know is right. And essentially, at that time, I had a lot of free time. I had my law degree going on the side, which was by four days every three months. And uh, I started trying to work out what I wanted to do because I knew there was more lawyers per capita in New Zealand and Australia than anywhere else in the world. And that was the last thing I wanted to be doing. Yeah, right. And that's kind of where uh, the story sort of started on where I got to today in terms of this lawn story. Yeah. Uh, the second sort of part was that I was very lucky that one of Steve Jobs' um, guys who worked with him closely in his starting up phase was a Kiwi and he'd run uh, multi-billion dollar funds for him in Europe and South America. And so he had this, he came back home, quit his job as well, and also had a different view on the world and his mother was sick in the same town as my, uh, where I went to university. And David, who, uh, who's this guy, he helped me out a lot in terms of trying to develop ideas and uh, build something that would get me in a different mindset and also st starting up something out of university. And this thing was is that you only have a very, very short time to live regardless, like Steve Jobs was. But more importantly, anyone can, you can set up any business you want in the world and it'll take you the same amount of time it is to set up a cafe or set up, you know, a food distribution business or whatever else you want to do that you might as well do something that actually makes a difference in the world because the amount of effort it does to make the one that makes, it, makes a difference is the same as one that just makes you money. Mm. Um, and that's essentially how I got started with Globlet. So you're like the Tim Ferriss of the of the, um, law hacks, right? Pretty much, yeah, I guess. Like yeah. the four-hour legal week. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. I hope more students take it up, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Gee, I'm not sure whether we should be uh, encouraging them or not. But, you know, <laughs> hey, it's a, you know, it was a legitimate way of doing it. So, exactly. You know, if, you, if you found the shortcut, then you're the smartest kid in the room, right? Touche. <laughs> yeah, so uh, so I'm, I, I'm looking at your uh, bottle there. Is it that one of yours? Yeah, yeah, this yeah? is one of ours, yeah. So... So okay, so you so you did all this and and you met this guy that you know worked with Steve Jobs and yeah. he's helped you I guess like a mentor a part of the program for you. Yeah. What got you to the bottles and to the the, the circular economy? Well, I had uh, uh, there were kind of three things on my radar of things I felt needed to be done differently in the world that weren't being done differently in the world. The first was I felt which I haven't done yet, I've inspired a few of my friends have now started them, was that um, access to food should be cheaper and, we, and knowledge about food should be uh, better and there's no reason why we shouldn't have uh, essentially permaculture farms integrated into the world in a different way where every single rooftop or whatever it is in the world has a garden on it and it could be vertically grown or not and we're getting food cheaper to everyone 
and they're healthier and they don't have to man- maintain a garden. I feel like that's an opportunity that still hasn't been taken. Mm-hmm. We were still going to a supermarket buying a cucumber and plastic whenever we actually built a different system and thought about it differently, we could be building that. And there's all this waste, all this waste of food plus packaging plus uh, nutrients because it's not fully nutrient. That was one of my targets. Uh, the other thing I studied into obviously was uh, waste. Yep. There was this big movement happening in Europe predominantly on uh, single-use waste in France, uh, uh, especially in Germany. Um, and I kind of uh, anticipated that it was going to get even uh, bigger around the world and more people as the um, knowledge spread would uh, get into it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, no different than health as well is another one that's changed pretty fast in the last 10 years, yep. which is uh, you know healthy eating. And now we got uh, it's, it's still growing and changing a lot right now. Um, and so I chose waste as my target and I'm sitting at a rugby game in New Zealand um, and there is, everyone's still using single-use cups, which they still do actually in the stadium yep. in Dunedin. And uh, I was like, I, I'm sure I can um, create a reusable product, wash it and uh, do it cheaper than the disposable. And that's that's essentially global. It. I spent, uh, I said to myself that in all this free time I have, I'm going to call every single um, every single person I think who could pay for a cup or ev- and every single mu- music festival promoter in New Zealand. Yeah. And if every single one says no, that they don't want to go reusable, then I know there's nothing there. But at least yeah. I talked to every single person to know who the market was there. And that's what I did. I started phone calling, um, you know, promoters I'd never talked to before. Um, phone calling uh, different TAB right through the banks to go pay for the cups. I went to the stadium. They said I could put all the cups into the corporate boxes for um, free, but uh, they're not going to pay for them. And But I, if I could find a sponsor to put their name on it, then they would put them in. Yep. And I was lucky enough, ex-All Blacks coach Laurie Maines, he's probably, you know, I uh, have three months of phone calls down the line. Everyone in my... Uh, space started laughing because they couldn't believe how how many no's I'd get and how many how fast I'd jump on the phone again to call someone else and Larry finally said uh, can you come to my office I went to his office and he said um, I'll sign you a check here's the check paid for my first uh, lot of cups which and in, in, in in, was enough that I could then go develop a, a machinery and buy machinery to produce those cups and yeah. all those cups got washed in the stadium and that was essentially the start of Globlet so that would have been a special moment, getting the, that that first check. Pretty much, I think the I think the, I was I think I was more excited about going to the corporate boxes at the All Blacks. Yeah, right, right. And hanging out with uh, them. hanging out with the coach. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> rather, more than anything. So, 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 yeah. really, the cold calling thing. You know, you've got to have a bit of tenacity to do that, don't you? I think you need a philosophy, and the, ph- the philosophy for me was that I have a year. You don't, I don't know if everyone said no yet. Yep. I, I'm, I know that 99% are probably going to say, or maybe everyone's going to say no, but I need to hear them say no to know that it actually is a no. Yep. Um, and so that was part of my philosophy is that regardless, I'm going to call you know 10 people, whatever it was a day, or try and reach out to 10 different people a day until everyone possible had said no. So the, when did the company actually start? Uh, that was 2012, <coughs> March. And, and from there to where you are today, is the resistance less now? Uh, no, the resistance still there. Uh, 
The resistance is still there quite a lot, actually, in the exact same respect as when I started. Uh, uh, different things make different people change. So all those no's, essentially, I just hadn't found out what makes people say yes. Right. Yep. Right. So, so, uh, so now I take it you've got – you said you had an office here in Sydney now. Yeah. we got one in Sydney and one in Wellington in New Zealand. Right. And, I, and, Welling, and New Zealand's your main market – to date, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, 95% of music festivals in New Zealand are reusable um, and uh, and there's only 5%, which actually one of them's Aussie owned and another one is just doesn't want to change. Right. Um, and then we've just started in the sports industry, which is uh, translating a lot of the sports industry in terms of cricket, rugby, out of single-use uh, plastic. So I take it that part of the resistance at the football stadiums, for instance, is... Um, you know, um, I know from our our program uh, with Clean Oceans, we use uh, reusable steel water bottles. Yeah. Um, is that they they won't issue those because they're projectiles; they can kill people, yeah. <laughs> especially if they're full. So I I take it that it's you'd probably get a similar resistance from you got from for your... concerts. We do, yeah. That's uh, you know, like we would we would have happily done like Ed Sheeran and stuff, and they say, oh no, because they're not crushable. Mm. We uh, can't do them. So, um, so a lot of its writers, yeah. So I know what the program's about. I've spent a bit of time on the website and we found you because of our, our program for getting rid of single-use plastic off every beach in Australia. But tell everybody how, how the system actually works in a, an event situation. Um, well, uh, the easiest uh, example of it would be there's a festival in New Zealand which was our first multi-day festival called Splore Festival. They're, they're very green-focused festival. The owners are very conscious of the environment. And uh, let's say or we've been doing them for six or seven years now. So let's say eight years ago they were actually using compostable packaging. They'd chosen to go use compostable packaging. Mm -hmm. So they, for beer they had 50,000 single-use compostable cups that came from China or Thailand, I think it was. And they're all used once and they're um, supposedly composed, right? Mm. Uh in that festival, we went in and put 10,000 reusable cups made in New Zealand rather than 50,000 um, sugarcane cups made in Thailand. Mm -hmm. And instead of everyone just consuming cups, we put on a deposit system, which at that point was a $3 deposit. So you paid $3 extra with your first drink. So it was a $13 drink. Yep. But if you bought your cup back, the drink was $10 and you had a reusable cup. And you could swap that cup for a fresh one over the bar. Uh, or you could refill your own cup. In Australia, most of it's now just swapping over the bar. Mm -hmm. And we'd take those cups, we'd wash them at our, in, a washing, in washing systems, and then they would put them back into the bars. Fantastic. And that's pretty much uh, Global at a T. And then uh, on that three-day festival, those 10,000 cups would satisfy, get rid of 50,000 single-use cups, and in exchange, about 2,000 of them might go home as a souvenir. Mm -hmm. We also at that festival have full tracking of rubbish bins. Um, and I think it was 0.03% uh, ended up in a bin. And it was like 0.07% were damaged, like they'd been crushed in some form, uh, which is someone had put it in the bin and not wanted to get a deposit back. So it definitely, so the system definitely works. The system works, yeah. Yeah, and it's, for you now, it's just a matter of scaling it up, right? Pretty much, yeah. Getting and and bigger deals are more complex for bigger events because uh, there's a lot of different parties involved, right? 
yep. take a SCG or a, you know ANZ Stadium. You got caterers. You have all these different people of interest: caterers, um, sponsors, sponsors from the event that's going in, sponsors who have a relationship with the stadia, and then there's the actual stadium itself. Um, all having different uh, thoughts inside the process. So you have a you, you'd have a team of people that are paid employees. Do you have like volunteers as well? Is that how the uh, we used to? We tr- transitioned our employees, so anyone who works for us is paid. Yep. Um, at an event, um, that's just part of our ethos that people should probably be paid. And if you, and if you're not producing, you're not producing enough value if you can't pay them. So you you're a pro- a profit with purpose type company right rather yep. than a, a not-for-profit exactly yeah right so. i kind of have a stink for not-for-profits to be honest right. um well a lot of them uh mainly because you know you've got some like i'm going to give examples like thank you water mm-hmm. which is a not-for-profit that says they give money back right or they give 100 cent of profits back queensland yeah 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 but the issue i find is that what is 100 percent of profits if you don't make any profits right or in a not-for-profit, you might be playing yourself as an employee, 300k a year and making zero profit. So it's a good uh, spin on. It's a it's a spin, right? It's a spin, is that essentially a marketing tool, rather than. And I think in different countries, different, uh, you know, like Delaware North companies versus you know B Corp companies in America. There's these different structures. They might they advertise in different ways for tax legality reasons. Mm. But in terms of every country has a different structure, I think that's essential in each country. So essentially, you get you, what you're doing gets to the same result as a not-for-profit. Yeah. The only difference is that you actually pay your employees, etc., rather exactly. than relying and, on volunteers. And we invest in all our own technology rather than relying on every uh, you know handouts to pay for or people to donate to uh, pay for technology. So once again, the, your tenacity gets you through. I take it. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. And, the, and the same philosophy actually I think came from David as well because I remember when I first started, you know, in a startup phase, everyone wants, everyone's thinking I need to go raise money and, it, and you also go like, oh, which government grants am I going to go for because they're like, I need cash, right? You've mm-hmm. got no cash. And David's philosophy was is that if you're um, creating so much value and you're, you, the amount of effort it does takes for you to go find an investor and get that whatever it is, one million, fifty million, or X dollars. You could have gone and found a million clients at that same time who will be paying you for life a dollar each, and you're still you're in a better position than going and just finding <coughs> an investor. Um, and so that's always been my philosophy that it's up to us to go invest and us to go try and reach more and try and create value for everybody. So, so you, um, it works on your own hard work. The, the much, harder yeah. you work, the more profit you're likely to make. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, because the the because you you're out there p- pounding the pavement, getting these events going. But it, at, even at the events, if you're working hard, you're going to get more people buying the get taking the deposit on the cups, right? Exactly. And I kind of think about it differently than that. I think. Uh, I think there's three. I think we're in the third phase of the world, and there's going to be a fourth phase soon. And I think the first phase was, if you're wealthy, you bought land, right? So the queen bought land; she leased it to people. And if you owned property, that was wealth. Even today in Australia, and New Zealand, owning property is a, seen as a way of generating a lot of wealth, right? Yep. That's the first phase, still going. Um, the second phase of the world 
was Henry Ford, you know, industrial age, I can pay you $5 an hour rather than five cents a day and I'll give you a mortgage for a home, car, health insurance and all you have to do is show up nine to five, he transformed the world. Uh, world. As long as you work hard in those hours, you can create a lot of value and the business would create a lot of value and you'd get cars to everyone in the world. Yep. Second phase, it was successful. Still industries do it today, China. The, the third phase of the world um, is an Airbnb-like model, which is that Airbnb doesn't have to own a hotel like the Hilton Group and can produce more revenue than the Hilton Group. Mm. And so now it's not about land that you own. It's not about how many hours you work and how hard you work. It's really about how do you think about things different and connect them in the right way. I think that's kind of the phase where it's still in right now. Yep. In fourth phase, I don't think we anyone quite knows what it's going to be like yet. Have you got an idea? I I don't have an idea. I think um, I think technology. Uh, the biggest question is going to be what does everyone do with their free time once they have more free time, and how do people survive in that in that world? Um, I think that uh, robotics, especially if I look at factories, it can now almost it can it can be cheaper to produce a product in Australia and New Zealand now with a robot mm-hmm. than it is to produce it in Asia and ship it over here. Um, so you take away a whole bunch of the labour force. They say uh, law is out of the picture for lawyers in the next what ten years. Yeah. Um, especially by asking questions online. Um, there's going to be a whole bunch of different, I don't know, the world's going to be very drastic in the next uh, 10 to 20 years, I think. Yeah, it's a critical time really, you know, you've got, so I take it you're, what you're saying is in some ways is you've got w- people that with their spare time are going to use it for community and the betterment of the planet and then you've got people that uh, whatever. So I think, yeah, people, I think... Uh, I think, I don't know what happens, but Mm. I think uh, the thing that is needed is that um, you have to think about things differently in an Airbnb-like way because you're not going to build a business like the Hilton Group did or like Henry Ford did. You need to build a business like Airbnb right now. Mm -hmm. But Airbnb's also going to be out of the picture probably unless uh, with new things that come out, right, which we we can't even imagine yet. Mm. It might be that we're all... uh, Communally living by tiny homes or whatever I don't know or mm-hmm. uh, there's or maybe we are on a, another planet you know that yeah I I think part of the problem is that that we've become a disposable world which is hence why why you're doing what you're doing yeah you know there's um, there's apathy and convenience has caused the disposable world yeah so where to next. You know, that's the question. And, you know, this goes back, um, which I was going to say is, you know, Steve Jobs' view was, is that you go build something that creates so much value that everybody loves it and that value ends up creating even more value, right, which is you can now run your business from your phone. First, the second one was, you know, uh, Bill Gates was create all this value and then give it to charity. There are two different mindsets in the world, right? Mm. And I think the creating value one works better and we have to see the world as abundant and it's not that there's, for example, in the plaque, you can see the world as a dystopian view very easily because our brain wants to do that, right? But I think you also have to see the world as like, uh, we have so much plastic now, like that's the opportunity, right? I, don't, I, don't, I still don't quite understand why everyone um, complains about this plastic 
problem rather than actually designing products or going and raising money for this recycling factory that will recycle it. I feel like there's so much wasted plastic, for example, there that no one's just designing systems for because everyone's talking about it, but no one's actually going and creating or thinking about what can I actually build. I guess because there's there's an investment there, there, right? You know, waste management companies, um, that's how they survive. They're quite, in Australia, they're quite powerful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. That, and that's that's part of the issue in the in the whole debacle as well. But I think we've seen with like plastic bag bans, the movement have, can be sparked, especially in Australia, because mm. it's maybe smaller, can be sparked very easy as you can get enough traction to different people, right? Well, it comes down to education to, for us. And with our program, it's about educating kids when they're smaller to yeah. think differently so yeah. that when they get to our age... Yeah. Well, I'm older than you, but, you, <laughs> but, know. you know, <laughs> you know, when 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 we get to, when they get to ad- adulthood, they've got a totally different mindset. Yeah, you know, rather than necessarily like you're saying, picking up plastic off the beach, that's you know, that's an eternal thing. It's yeah. instead of going back to the source, right? Exactly. Well, I still I still don't understand with the whole bag ban, for example, that. Every single product in the supermarket's in a bag, but we're still only talking about the last bag. Yeah, that's right. The, you know? the, the <laughs> like, end bag. Yeah. yeah, the end bag's the talking point, but we're still going to that same supermarket. And yeah, I go to the went to the supermarket yesterday, and all the fruit and vegetables were in in bags. those plastic containers. Yeah. So then you go to the counter, and yeah, sure, they've got their um, uh, what do they call them? non-woven, you know, carry bags. Yeah. But you've still got, you know, a bin full of plastic in the, in the shopping cart anyway. I know. So, so it's a, that, that's a whole. That's not going to change quickly. But I think it, it, things do change quickly, mm. right? I think in the next next five years, technology is going to change that we won't even even be thinking about these things. So do you think that um, the way to approach it is to is to create those? I know we've interviewed. Um, I can't remember his name, but he's from Western Australia. He, he's created a recyclable factory yeah. and he turns all of the plastic into uh, beads to put in 3D printers. Yeah. Um, he gives the 3D printers to schools and they produce, reproduce product. Yeah, um, stuff like that. I agree. Yeah. Um, I, I think the circular economy is going to become a bigger thing in the next five years, which is what Globlet's based on. And um, part of that is designing products and systems for each of these different products. And it's going to take each product down the life cycle, you know, from bottled water, coffee, all these different products need to be worked out. I think technology has to come into it where packaging's tracked. Yep. Um, and that's as simple as an RFID chip or QR code where everything is tracked as you walk out. Everything that goes in a bin is tracked. You know who bought what. Um, that changes the game as well in the next couple of years. Mm. So, uh, so the name, where did the name come from? Uh, the name came from that uh, goblet is a, um, uh, you know, goblet is a plastic cup yep. or whatever, a cup. Yep. And uh, I thought it's about the world, so I called it Globlet. Right. Um, and then in different places, people call it uh, different things. My mother still calls it Goblet. <laughs> and and um and Taranaki in New Zealand they call it Globle, um because in France yeah. you call it Globe, you yeah. know Goblet, yeah. not goblet. So yeah, that's kind of where it came from. 
Okay. And uh, so if you had if you had the perfect vision for or the perfect dream for the future, what would that be? Um, well, yeah, I've thought about this a lot. The um, Right now my view for the future is Australasia and Asia, um, all major events have gone reusable especially. And then uh, we've got a, in June the 15th we're bringing out Cup Club in um, Australia, which is our reusable coffee cup system we're going to introduce into the cities. Yep. Um, it's going to start off with out tracking cafes. You can go to your cafe, pay $1 extra, get a reusable coffee cup, drop it off at another cafe, get another coffee. Um, and then the cafes will wash them or we will wash them either on whatever system the cafes want, um, which means it's a zero-cost situation. Mm. I'd like to see that scaled so all cafes across Australasia especially um, have gone reusable or have a very simple, cheap, reusable uh, solution. Those cups might be zero-cost at one point as well uh, as we go further down the scale mm. um, and more people using them. It's like you just get a reusable cup like you do get a disposable cup. Um, and I see trackability and uh, and smart bins uh, for products. Right. Where yeah, pack it and and so it could be anywhere from our reusable products are tracked right through to single use compostables or packaging is also tracked. So what's uh, what's next for Globlet? Uh, next thing is this Cup Club this year. We're uh, going to we're expanding to Asia and uh, US. Um, and then we're just doing our sports strategy on getting uh, more of the sports industry going reusable. Um, we're building a new washing factory. We've got one in Sydney, another one going to set up in Melbourne and also a, a more state-of-the-art portable one that can be drop-shipped to anywhere and then wash, you know, 10,000 cups an hour. So what's that like, a big dishwasher? Uh, yeah, one of the hardest things for us was actually uh, washing of cups. When I first started, we hand-washed them. Um, Right through to in my second year, I think we had my mother's garage was full of cups at one point <laughs> and I, my dad and I were washing them and uh, over the years we had to design washing machines. You can buy dishwashing machines that wash but they're not necessarily fast enough or efficient enough or use too much water yep. or they use a lot of soap. So we designed washing machines essentially that can wash uh, cups quickly and um, effectively. Yep. Uh, and then the biggest issue with plastic is it doesn't dry. So we had to invent drying machines that dried them as well. So they'd come straight out of a washer, 100% dry, and then could be stacked. Right. Um, where otherwise you just got to, you got, you know, 50,000 or 100 or 200,000 wet cups that you have to try and dry with a tea towel. So how many cups can you dry in in in, the, in a purpose-built factory like uh, that? 10,000 cups an hour go through a machine. Wow. So, so if you do an event of 100,000 you know, 10 hours essentially so, you could yeah, say right. give or take. Um, so, so it's pretty efficient. Yeah, it's very efficient. That, that, that's handy. Yeah, 200. We aim, for to do, we aim to get 200 trays per hour for a machine. So from the from the lad that figured out the legal hack for the four hour legal week, um, yeah. what what's the hack for you for future so you don't have to work too hard? Well, I uh, I I don't think there is um I don't think there's uh, the issue that I've found actually is every I've been talking to a few different people about this because if you take the whole sales thing of t calling every single. 
person in the industry saying, do you want to go reusable? The, um, there is no one cool, one uh, solution that fits everyone. Every single one needs design differently. And so yeah. part of our hack is how do we reach it and make it, how do we make everything cheaper than disposables, more environmentally friendly and uh, simpler for each of the different big markets, be it coffee cups, stadia, music festivals. Yep. Because um, the $3, $1 refund d- deposit system we work doesn't co- work as well at some events as it does at others. Yep. Um, uh, and I'd like to say it, that it was actually somehow free, where it's almost like you, it's free for everyone in, in, in perceived value, right? It's almost like Spotify is free. Mm. It's $10 a month, but a lot of people don't even think about the $10 a month. I'd like to see reusables at that level where it's 10 bucks a month and no one's thinking about it and we're doing all the hard yards in the background so everything, single product is reusable in terms of food, um, serveware. Right. But as far as you, your, you personally, do you have you figured out a way to shorten your week like hours-wise? Because it sounds to me like to achieve what you want to achieve, you've got to work uh, 100 hours a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I haven't. I haven't uh, hacked a week. I like working, but uh, um, I have hacked in terms of. Uh, I, I know. I know how much I can get done in a certain period of time. I've got a story that goes with it actually. Okay. So, um, the year I finished law school, and I'd finished Globalist, I'd um, oh I'd started Globalist, and Globalist was going. I was like, I don't know if I want to be doing Globalist. You know, like I'm going to be sixty and say, oh, what have you done, Ryan? And everyone's going to be like, oh, he put plastic cups into events and got rid of single use. Like, that was it. Yeah, right. And so I spent a year travelling trying to work out actually what I wanted to do. And um, part of it was as I was sitting in Mexico and I'd set up this essentially a a not-for-profit. It wasn't even a profit. It was backpackers could come and clean these beaches that got covered in rubbish every day from the ocean because of rubbish in the ocean. Backpackers would come and clean them. And in exchange, the, they'd get free diving and a free trip around Cozumel, this island in Mexico. And so I'm sitting there and backpackers would come over, they'd clean the beach. And I'd set it up with this other Kiwi guy I'd randomly met who became a good friend of mine and now runs one of these permaculture forests because he quit his job and went back home and set up this permaculture okay. forest right. called Kaitaki Farm in New Plymouth, which supplies vegetables to the region. He... Um, uh, he he randomly met me in Mexico at Mexico Airport because we uh, he saw my jacket. It was a New Zealand jacket, and then we started travelling together and we set this up. And what a, part of the thing that killed me was I was uh, I was in that mindset of let's hack time, like yep. you say. And um, I'd go windsurfing every morning for two hours, and Toby, my mate, would sleep. And I started thinking, you know, in thirty days, if I do that for thirty days, that's sixty hours of the month, yep. so 60 full daylight hours, I was windsurfing while he was sleeping. And if I did that over the 12 months of the year, 60 hours every month, it now adds up to over 30 full daylight hours just from doing two hours a day of windsurfing. And then I windsurfed that whole, a whole month of the year while he slept. And I kind of had taken that back and thought, how do, what things do I want to get done every year? And then I break it down as in two hour lots of every day. Right. So I do two hours of strategy on sales every day regardless. Um, two hours of, you know, uh, I do one hour of email. I try and break it down to 
Um, and that's kind of just how I break it down. And I, if I can't get X done in the day, then I know I've got my next two hours tomorrow and it's going to habitually compound to whatever it is in the year. So is that is that a, a, like a rigid routine or does it is is it a flexible? Thing? It's a flow routine. I'm here right now. That's I'd normally be doing strategy. And you're going to, <laughs> and you're playing golf after this. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> so you have figured out a way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, Ryan, we finished the interview usually with a song, and I yeah. emailed you about the song and and tell us the song. Uh, Dreams by Fleetwood Mac. And why why that song? Um, I I think. Dreams as a as a song uh, is all about you should be dreaming your whole life, yep. and and dreams do come well. And in your case, it looks like it has come true. It has, Ryan. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you.